0: podcast listeners. We are grateful to be able to have a wonderful conversation with Amy Johnson today. She works with the Missouri Baptist Children's Home um, and specifically helps um, amongst the other programs that she's a trainer for. She uh, helps train the Lighthouse, which is a, a maternity home based in Missouri. So really excited. She's very well versed in the topics we're going to discuss. And we're just excited to kind of enter in and dialogue with her about some interesting topics. Amy, would you mind just introducing yourself briefly?
1: Sure. I am in St. Louis. I am the training director for Missouri Baptist Children's Home. I have actually been here about 28 years. I'll come up on 28 years in January. The good news is I haven't had the exact same job that whole time. When I tell my millennial friends that I've been here 28 years, they always get like big eyed and they're like, how can you stay in one place so long? the good news is that I I haven't actually been in the exact same job. So I've done a lot of different things here at the children's home.
0: And I noticed um, in our email exchanges that you had uh, some TBRI accreditation type of things. Could you tell us about that?
1: Sure. I am a practitioner for Trust-Based Relational Intervention, TBRI. It is a program out of Texas Christian University. It was coined, or the the training part of it was coined by Dr. Karen Purvis and Dr. David Cross, and the Karen Purvis Child Development Institute is there at TCU in Texas, And, and I have been a practitioner since 2016, which the TBRI information has completely revamped really how we take care of our kids, And maybe in this interview, I'll say words like baby or child or kid. I don't mean to like, when I say kid, I don't mean to offend anyone, but most of the time I try to say baby only because TBRI talks a lot about thinking of all of our kids, no matter how old they are from teenager to, I mean, even young adults that like they're a baby because their brains may not have developed very well because of trauma. So a lot of times if I'm, you know, doing a video um, for my staff, I'll, I'll say babies and babies means all ages.
0: Yeah, no, thank you for that. It's, I think in general, um, as homes have wrestled with looking at TBRI, it's having to make that shift on how does this apply to adult women? And what we know in some, some way is that that really, the concepts are the same, the principles are the same. There maybe needs to be adaptation as you're working with adults, but in general, the, the concepts are the same.
1: Yep, absolutely. We have women here, girls here that are pregnant or they have their babies and their their brains of the baby is just as undeveloped as almost their brain. So when we're dealing with mom and baby, we're we're giving them the exact same information.
0: Yeah, no thanks. So as we were prepping for this call, one of the ideas that you tossed out as a as a launching point was really kind of the shift from behavior focused to needs focused. And I'm really curious for you to unpack what that means. I think we're kind of always looking for the trends, right? What are the the shifts in philosophy and the shifts in approach? And this sounds like it might be a key one.
1: Right. You know, uh, all of my staff, and really for me too, the last you know 25 years, we have really focused on behavior of people. Like we'll say, all right, so we need to change their behavior. They're getting kicked out of school or they're harsh to the people in the house or they're mean to their parents or foster parents. And so we would always implement like negative consequences. Often we would even say, you know, like if you don't, if you don't clean your room, then you're going to have your room chore plus additional chores. So we would really focus on the behavior aspect. This kid or this child is not doing what they're supposed to do behaviorally. Where TBRI comes in, Trust-Based Relational Intervention says, you know, I see the behavior and the behavior just means there's a need. So like earlier, I was talking about the baby. If a baby is crying, an actual baby and they're crying, there are like some primary things that we need to do to help them stop crying. Uh, we pick them up and rock them or we change their diaper or we feed them or, you know, we just move them to another location. We swaddle them. Maybe they're cold. We add some more clothing. The baby can't communicate. All they can do is communicate by, by fussing or making crying sounds. And none of my staff would ever say, oh, a baby is crying. I better pick them up and, you know, uh, consequence them for crying. No, our, our staff would be like, oh, here's a sweet baby. I'm going to pick them up. I'm going to do all that I can to make this baby stop crying. I'm going to change their diaper. I'm going to hold them. I'm going to speak softly and gently to them the whole time. So TBRI says, all right, now you have a, a 12-year-old. And the 12-year-old is having some misbehavior. They're struggling at school. They're struggling at home. They're not doing well with other people. Let's say that's like a baby crying. Those behaviors are really needs that this child has. But the child doesn't have a way to use his words or her words to get her needs met or his needs met. So I, I try to all the time talk to my staff that, yes, I, I see you're telling me the behavior of this kid, but what is the underlining need? What does the child need? And it, it takes a lot to get your mind to that, to that point.
0: Yeah, absolutely. My, my follow-up question was kind of to that, you know, um, because we're talking to the housing community specifically, you know, there's this kind of nitty grittiness to the thing. And I think there's a temptation to feel like, oh, they're drama, you know, they just like drama. They want to stir up drama or, oh, they're just looking for attention or, you know, these things that maybe, in, you know, just on a gut level, we like get frustrated, annoyed. Can you kind of speak into that dynamic a bit?
1: Right. So, I, we grew up and when we grew up, our parents worked with us and taught us through behavior. You know, like if you grew up in, in a church community at all, it's like spare the rod, you're going to spoil the child. And so it was really focused on what they're doing, not really about what they need. And I always say to my staff, you know, our parents didn't teach us to use your words to verbalize what you need. What they did was, as they saw us acting out And uh, when we acted out, we either got in trouble or got what we wanted. We either pushed them far enough and got what we wanted, or we got in trouble and we stopped that behavior. And when we stopped it, then we went around the back door and somehow got our needs met anyway, through behavior, not through using words. So one of the primary focuses for TBRI is to teach all of these kids who are having a hard time, like giving people a hard time, is to teach them to use their words. And... TBRI, one of the biggest things is it says, you know, kids aren't trying to give you a hard time, they're having a hard time. And so anytime our adults are doing the same, anytime our adults are like frustrated or angry, or they're just, you know, like, so non compliant, they're like on their own path. We, we stopped and just say, you know what, maybe they're not giving us a hard time. Maybe they're just having a hard time. So instead of sitting down and saying, you need to do this, 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 all this is wrong. We sit down and say, okay, why are you feeling this way? What do you need? And then you have to you have to let people talk. You have to listen to what their need. And then a lot of times the older kids will say it sounds like you, you might be OK with a compromise or, you know, what do you suggest? That comes in sharing power, because all of our kids, if you've come from trauma and even even an adult, power has been taken away from you. If we've been abused or neglected, we've been saying through the whole abuse and neglect, hey, stop, please don't do this. I'm hungry. Nobody feeds me. I ask you to stop beating me, but you don't stop. So our words have been taken away from us. And so now we don't know how to use our words and we get older and we still don't know how to use our words. And it looks like manipulation or, you know, frustration and anger. But really, our our people haven't been given the opportunity to learn how to use their words. Can you talk a bit about, so
0: that seems like a a skill, you know, to want to lean into to just be able to articulate what you need, whether that's, you know, a physical or physiological need or an emotional need or kind of whatever that looks like. How are you teaching? Is there anything you're doing um, explicitly? Or is it just kind of creating a culture of using your words?
1: Right. That's a good question. So that's, that's where it gets really tricky because a lot of us, when we're talking about TBRI, we sit in a classroom where we sit in our group and we have this big group and we learn. To say, okay, so today we're going to go out and we're going to remind all of our kids to, you know, keep using their words. But it, it's just, it's it's a bit more, tr- it's it's a bit more challenging in a practical sense. But if a if a person can see this kid walk into the room and. You know, if you've been around people long enough, you can see that their body language is just a little off today. So you can tell when they're frustrated. You can sense when something's going on. If a caring individual goes to that person, no matter the age, and just says, Are you doing okay? Even that small invitation can help change the behavior. Also, some practical things that we've implemented is that. TBRI teaches that most of the time our kids, our adults, our staff are dehydrated. and it's really odd that the effects of dehydration have on your body. like it is a mood stabilizer. If you are hydrated enough, then your mood gets stabilized. So we've implemented that. All of our kids have access to you know their water bottles and water and we always sit down with water at every training, at every meeting. Water is a big push. Because it meds, even our our kids are on meds, and so they get dehydrated pretty quickly. Another thing that we do is, and it sounds funny, but we offer snack about every two hours.
0: I hadn't heard the water concept before, and yet that makes so much sense. So it's such an easy solution, right? To have to have it available to make it accessible. You know, it's such an easy way that our programs can easily integrate. Yeah,
1: definitely water, and then you know, like getting teenagers and older kids to drink. Water is a bit challenging, but you can also find some fun in that sometimes people do charts or sometimes he, people have flavored going, going into their water. If you let them pick out their own water bottle and just, you know, you and a kid have a really great relationship or you and an adult have a good relationship. You're just always talking about water. One day I was on the phone with my coworker and we had just talked about hydration and he, he was asking, how you doing, Amy? And I said, I'm a little slow today. And he's like, well, have you had much water? So he was asking me, the trainer of all of this, have I had much water today? And and the fact was, I hadn't. So I went and got some water. So we we implement the water. Another real practical thing is we do snack every two hours. Now, I don't mean like sweet, salty, crazy snacks. I mean like some kind of healthy snacks, although sweet and salty are implemented because just, you know, people love that taste. But every two hours, your body is going to go through some blood sugar dips And we try not to let our kids get too low because hangry is a real thing. Like hungry equals being angry. And so we teach our staff and our foster parents that if it is dinner at six o'clock and a child comes to you and like, let's say it's even 5.45, you know you're gonna eat in 15 minutes. Most of our staff and foster parents are like, hey, we're eating in 15 minutes. There's nothing to eat because, you know, I don't want to ruin your, your meal. Let me just say that 15 minutes between then and when you eat dinner can be really the hardest part of the day because your kids are hungry. They smell the food cooking. Their their senses, internal senses are like, oh, I'm ready to eat. They start salivating and their body triggers hunger just at the smell of food. And we'll all know this at Thanksgiving because we'll walk into a house and we'll be like, I need to eat right now. So your kids at quarter till dinner time might need a piece of butter bread, or some a cracker, or some fruit, or a vegetable, just something to hold them over. And so we teach staff to say, uh, the kid comes in, they're helping you set the table. Man, I'm really hungry. That's what the child says, and you say, well, why don't you get a piece of butter bread and we'll keep working. The child said, I'm hungry. You said, get something to eat. You met their need. That creates trust. If you say, no, you can't have anything to eat, then fear. It goes back to one of the things I'll talk about today is that survival brain. A lot of our kids haven't had enough to eat. And so they hoard food or they, they just, it's so focused around food. So feeding like every two hours, something to eat is a really big deal. It, it helps with the mood. And then another thing that a takeaway for this is activity and activity works for all of us. But, you know, the theory body at rest stays at rest. The body in motion stays in motion. If you take kids and let's say their kids are at school and they get in trouble at school and the teacher's like, you have to stay in for recess. That teacher has just made life very hard for the classroom because it's been proven that when children are active or anyone is active, positive chemicals drip from the brain and it creates better mood. One time a foster parent was calling and they were saying they were really struggling with this sibling group and one child in particular. And so I I always like to say uh, when you're when you're struggling with some behavior in the home, we want to look at two things. We want to look at the balance of structure and the balance of nurture. And so I asked them to give me their daily schedule because the schedule is needed for kids that have trauma. I mean, they have to have consistency. So I asked for the schedule. And I was listening for this one particular part. And when they got to the to the end, you know, they had told me wake up time, meal times, when they go to school, what time they get home from school, chores, showers, dinner, bedtime. So I let them speak for and talk for a couple of minutes. And then I said, I think maybe you missed telling me what time they play. Like, when is the scheduled playtime for your kids? And they, they said, well, we don't have enough time during the day. Like you can see, we have a large family. We don't have enough time for play. And I said, there is probably one of your primary causes because kids that don't play, don't get those positive chemicals going in. Plus play creates just an environment of fun and learning. And it's so healthy. Plus a whole bunch of sensory things happen when you play, like when you swing, Swinging just isn't swinging, but the sensation of the, uh, the the wind, the air, the going up and this coming back down, that's all sensory for we call it vestibular. It's like you've got that liquid in your ear and those vestibular canals or channels. The moving back and forth helps you to balance your mood. And so climbing up, you know, like being outside climbing up a climbing wall at a park, we would say that deep muscle pulling yourself up, that's proprioception. Those things stimulate calmness in your body. So play is fun, but it's also growth. You you grow emotionally healthy when you play. And so I always tell my families, implement those three things and see what happens. Water, snack, and play about every two hours.
0: Yeah, I love hearing the kind of the body, you know, the physical emotional connection there. It's That's really fascinating. Mm-hmm. Um, before we segue into the next topic, you, so we're, we were talking about, you know, learning to use words to describe your feelings. And mm-hmm. do you, I guess, is there a way to inc- invite the women that we work with, you know, you don't want to um, say this is how you're feeling or, you know, to push feelings on them. I can right. see that that, you know, that would be something to avoid. And yet you want to kind of encourage them to think about feelings. Do you have any strategies that you've used or just things that you say to people? Or
1: Yeah, sure. You know what, uh, when you've been traumatized, you've been taught not to feel. And when you've been taught not to feel, you don't know you're supposed to say your feelings. I mean, you do say them because you get angry and you're loud and you get, you know, intimidating with your sound, but you don't know that you're supposed to. And a, a lot of times we uh, will have pictures of feelings and just like, Not on purpose, but I mean, it's on purpose where they're at. So like if our staff are talking to the older women, like we have a human trafficking rescue here. And so we're dealing with some older women, but the the pictures will be up and they could like see this, this picture looks like. Uh, anger and this picture looks like happy and you can also talk about emojis like if you were going to send me a text what emoji would you use that that's a real practical way because all everyone has the phone another thing that we do and we got this from TBRI and I think they got it from play therapy but we create just by using a piece of paper like a paper plate and Karen calls it an engine plate and we write on there we've we've implemented four feelings. We divide a paper plate into four sections, and one section is going to be really low, and that's going to be like a, a blue section. I feel low or blue. Another section is going to be green, and green feels just right. Like, I'm, I'm in a good mood today. Things feel good. There's another section that's red. I'm angry. I'm, I'm anxious. I'm upset. Like, you're you're revved high. And then we implemented this fourth section. It's purple, and it's like a mix between I'm a bit depressed but I'm also very anxious. And then we just you know put a little cute little thing that'll swirl in the middle and we'll put it on all of our clients' doors, even the the women in human trafficking rescue, and we'll just we'll just say, "Hey, you guys, make sure you check your engines or how's your heart feeling?" And they'll just you know move the little arrow. And then we don't even have to ask because they'll just they'll just move the arrow. Like I have one on my door, too, and it just every day or every several times a day you come by, this is how I'm feeling. It takes the guesswork out. Like if I'm working with people and I know that this person feels anxious, I know to bring them water. I know maybe to bring them some gum or a sucker like TBRI teaches that if you're going to have a hard conversation with a kid, maybe give a sucker because the sucking on it is sensory. You, You feel the taste, like you sense the taste, but also sucking on that sucker is proprioception. It just helps with the mood. So we might give them gum or suckers. Somebody donated like 5,000 dum-dums to us and our HTR group, human trafficking rescue group goes through those quite a bit because of course they're so, they're anxious. So much has happened. So much trauma.
0: Yeah, no, those are great practical examples. Thank you. So we talked about being hangry, but you mentioned the uh, focusing on fear rather than <laughs> anger as the next kind of big big topic to explore. So, what does that mean? This kind of focus on fear rather than anger.
1: Right. You know, years ago I went to a training, and in this training, Malcolm Smith he came and talked to a whole bunch of social service workers, and out of all of the training, I heard him say that you know anger equals fear, and He taught us that when you're angry, your body has like the same internal reaction, the same blood pressure, heart rate, body temperature as you do when you're afraid. So the theory, and it's not just his, but it's a theory in psychology. The theory says when you have people that are angry, then you need to look at that anger as an underlining fear. Because if I tell you as a kid to, you need to work on your anger, or as an adult, you need to go to anger therapy, anger management, you need to stop being so angry. I think that's like holding a gigantic boulder on my shoulders. I don't know how to not be angry. I'm just angry. But if you say, maybe there's an underlining fear in all of this, then I can say, oh, I wonder what I'm afraid of. And then I throw this out to my my adults you are at a, at a mall or you're grocery shopping at a big, huge store and you've got three kids and you're, 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 you're doing your thing. And like, you turn around and you realize one of those kids isn't there. And so you're panicking, you're looking around and you're like, other people see that you're, you're in panic mode and they start looking and it took, takes like seven minutes, let's say to find this child. And they had just, you know, traveled somewhere else where it was a little bit more fun. Nobody had taken them. They were just in a different place. And the moment you see them, you're like, yes, finally. Oh, I'm so relieved. And then you squat down and you look them in the eyes and you're like, I told you to stay right with me. Right. So that, that fear changes immediately to anger and you're angry with the kid. So the anger really was produced by fear. So if I can get adults to recognize when they're angry, ask yourself what's an internal fear and you deal with that fear, you're much better off to reduce the anger. Uh, Another example on that is we're in our cars and it's a lot of traffic, right? And then someone cuts us off. We have to slam on our brakes. We get this internal like fear, like not really fear, but anger. We're just angry. And we're just, we have this, we have this switch, I can either like back off and let them you know have the right distance or I can go into road rage. Road rage comes from internal sense of fear of I feel disrespected, you just cut me off. Another part is if we had had an accident, then my insurance goes up, this is my favorite car, I'm going to have, you know, all this stuff to do with my car to fix it. So the fear in road rage is really just being disrespected, I think, and not like marginalized and not appreciated and not no one cares or is concerned about people around them. So yeah, it just produces anger. So I always challenge all of my staff to look at the people they're serving, whether older or younger. And when they're angry, just ask, what is that fear? What's that underlining fear? And when you can address the fear, you can sometimes diminish the anger.
0: Yeah, and I can see that playing out both for the residents, you know, the the women that we serve, and when they're experiencing anger and then trying to look, you know, beyond that anger to to the fear that, you know, that might be going on. But also as caregivers, you know, that when we respond with anger, when that whatever gets riled up in us, you know, that it's also speaking to some fear response. I know we often say with trauma-informed care, you know, it's not the issue. It's not your, you know, it's not the caregivers. It's don't take it personally. It's not yours to carry that type of thing. But even so we still experience like, why is she not listening to me? Why is she not doing what she needs to do? You know, and our own fears kind of associate with that.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I was just talking with some staff. I taught a class the other day and they were kind of like pouring into that very thing that I see my coworkers around me and I see this, this, teenager talking to me or this older woman talking to me so belittling I get angry and I know I'm not supposed to like take it personally but all my coworkers or all of the people in my you know cultural area where whatever area I'm in are looking down at me are you going to let her talk to you like that and so we, we have to balance like professionalism I know that this isn't I shouldn't take it personally and I also have to balance that whole mindset that I'm not adequate so it's really challenging.
0: So can you just maybe give a name to some of the fears that are expressed through anger? I mean, is it kind of any fear? Is it abandonment, not, not being adequate? You mentioned, you know, what, what are some of the fears that anger is giving voice to?
1: Sure. I I my, All my friends know, you know, like I'll, I'll say, anger is fear. And they're like, no, no, anger is not fear. Yeah, you tell me anytime you've gotten angry, I'm going to tell you there's a fear. It's a fear of being marginalized, a fear of being disrespected, a fear of not being heard, not being appreciated, a fear of of just being scared like you're gonna be disappointed in me. Uh, our kids also uh, get angry when the truth is being told. So the fear of the truth coming out, it's everything or being caught in an untruth. there are I mean I don't have a list that I can just say, but almost every single emotion that you feel, Can be like a bottom line of this could lead to anger. Uh, Let's say, you know, time, you're in a rush. Like, I've got a family that needs to get to this next appointment, and one kid is like dragging their feet. You've put in this transition. You've told them, hey, we're leaving in 15 minutes. We're leaving in 10 minutes. We're leaving in five. Make sure everything's together. All right, you guys, we're leaving. And they're still not ready. And so you get angry. Well, you're angry because you're afraid you're going to be late for an appointment, look down on. Uh, rushed Ev- everything has this this back channel to what am I afraid of?
0: The final topic that you posed was really survival brain, um, which is which is uh, an intriguing term. Can you tell us about survival brain?
1: Sure. they taught us a lot about brain chemicals and chemistry, and when we're when we're born or when we go through trauma, we are are stuck in survival mode meaning like our brains do all that it all that it can to protect us so we walk into a room and we assess the room immediately to see if the people look like they're safe or not or like i'm a runner and if when I start running let's say I'm gonna run for three miles the first six minutes like no problem running my brain is like oh this is easy and then all of a sudden I hit a wall at six and a half minutes and then your my brain kicks in and says you're getting ready to like feel the worst feelings don't keep running don't keep running and I have to mentally say my body is safe I don't have any pain I'm fine and so once I calm my brain internally then the three miles isn't nearly as difficult, but your brain tries to keep you from anything that's harmful. So our kids, our adults, they have been traumatized and they're not on this like perfect developmental trajectory. They're they're stuck back learning safety. And so their their minds, their brains are set on fight or flight or freeze. And and you can see this so much you, you're working with some of the, the women that you're working with and they get upset and angry. They go to the room and slam their door. Well, sometimes leaving a situation is survival. I have to get away from what's making me upset and then I have to calm down and then I can talk about it later. But if a staff member or someone goes to this kid who is just or this adult who's just slammed their door and they open the door or they keep knocking, say, come talk to me, then you see this big explosion because the brain is trying to keep them safe. I came to my room. I shut my door. I'm in here by myself protecting me. I need to stay safe. So our brains go into fight or flight or freeze. They can go into fight mode when, you know, we feel challenged. And so sometimes when you are talking about some of the, the rules or something and there's such pushback to stay safe, our clients will push back vocally and they're, they're like fighting. Listen, nobody has taken care of me my whole life. I'm in my own protector. And so to survive, I verbally fight. I know how to fight verbally and physically also. Sometimes it's flight mode, which would be that slamming of the door. And sometimes it's freeze where you're, you're asking someone, please, what could you tell me how you feel about this? Or can you, can you tell me why weren't you able to do, you know, what you were expected to do and they just, they're frozen. Some of that post-traumatic stress has them frozen from making a decision or anything. They just, they, they can't respond. The brain reacts and is in this lower lobe, like in the back of your head. And to get someone out of that survival brain, you have to get them thinking about things that are are pretty or that are easy or things that they're grateful for. So that's the front part of the brain. If I can take a kid who's anxious and angry and ask them, you know, what do you like to play on the playground? tell me about the playground. Oh, it has a red slide and the there's a climbing wall. It's brown. They start thinking about stuff which moves their thinking into the prefrontal cortex or the front part of the brain. Fight, flight, and freeze all have these drips of multiple chemicals, but cortisol for the most part. And if you listen to TBRI or if you YouTube Dr. Karen Purvis, she talks about just being in the fight, flight, or freeze constantly then your just body is always in, in flight mode or always in the survival mode. And they've done studies where babies, they've taken their urine samples, and these tra- traumatized babies just have nothing but cortisol in their urine, like this chemical, and it's just fight, flight, or freeze, because no one has taken care of them. So with older kids, older people, when they go into fight mode, we have to like take a step back. Yes, I see what that's like. Let them calm down. Start thinking about grateful things, uh, water, snack, maybe walk around for a few minutes. Hey, can we come back and talk in a few more minutes? I see that this is getting hard and I, I don't want them to retreat, fully retreat. So that's earlier I was talking about this, the difference between like structure and nurture that our everybody that we deal with needs plenty of structure. Like we have to have structure in the home. But they also need plenty of nurture.
0: I know that one of the big mistakes that I made as I've kind of, as I learned about this and then looked back on all my times of direct service in the home, I guess I always assumed that kind of rational conversation could fix the fix the conflict, right? So when things were getting escalated, if we could just kind of sit down and have a really reasonable, rational conversation, things would get better. Um, and and have since kind of realized that that strategy is not super effective, um, kind of what we've learned. I don't know if you could speak to that dynamic.
1: Well, uh, having a rational conversation is great with your friends, but when you're talking about kids who or anyone who's been through trauma, like I was mentioning earlier, they haven't been able to use their words. And having that rational conversation means I have to identify how I feel, and I have to trust that you're a protective adult, and I have to just have a lot of safety inside. Uh, a big thing for TBRI is that felt safety. It's it's not no. It's not only knowing that my door locks. These people are nice. I know they are not going to harm me, but it's an internal sense that I can trust these people. I can trust this place. And to have a a conversation like that, what you're talking about would require like intense felt safety. And so people that come to us in the first three to six months, aren't going to have that type of felt safety. And I can imagine all of the conversations I would need to have within the first three to six months, that fear, survival brain. They're not trusting you. It's going to take some time for them to trust. And which, which is one thing that TBRI does talk about that trust can be achieved, but it does come with like consistency. It'll take, you know, like however old they are, 24, it'll take like on average 24 months for it to be completely developed. But that doesn't mean if I only meet you for 24 hours Instead of have you for 24 months, if I only meet you for 24 hours, I can still be that that protective adult. I can still show you that I speak to you kindly. I listen to you and I can start giving them examples that they're safe with me. I'm a safe person. And actually, if you have a rational conversation, a lot of times we, the adults, want to do so much talking. Uh, I don't know if your parents did this, but they, they lectured a lot. I think because they have a lot to say, they have a lot of knowledge to give us kids when we were kids. But in reality, the better thing to do is to ask the kids, what do they think needed to happen? And if you've ever had conversations with kids and you just ask them a question and you're quiet, you hear so much like, oh. You're a way deeper than I intended you to be. So a lot of times our rationalizing conversations are about behavior and not about need. Like you need to stop doing this rather than, okay, when you did this, what do you, what do you need? What, what is going on? And then you letting the other person do the communicating.
0: I'm picking up on this kind of concept of structure and nurture. I think one thing I hear from homes as they start to explore these topics is that some reason their gut check is like, okay, we've got to do away with structure somehow, you know, we're revisiting our rules, and we're not going to be so consequence based. And somehow it feels like an absence of structure. And that brings a lot of fear that what, you know, that if if we don't have structure in this house, you know, things are, the moms are going to take over, or you know, what, whatever that that comes out as. Um, So I really like this idea of balancing um, structure and and nurture and the the role of both. Um, Could you say a bit more about that?
1: Absolutely. Listen, I just had a training the other day, and we were talking about this very subject. And the idea is that all of us parent like in one of four categories. We're either very authoritative, which is going to be where I know how to balance structure and nurture. I don't take your acting out behavior. So personally, I, I have a good mix or I'm authoritarian, which like I fully believe in rules and structure and order. And this person is really all about, you know, the example, setting the example. Or you can have someone who's like neglectful or a bit nurturing, you know, so there are, there are like these four categories. And all of us probably parent in multiple categories at the same time, but we tend to lean one way or the other. If you're authoritarian, my challenge to you is just to give a little bit of nurture, some, you know, like give in with a little bit of nurture. Yes, I know dinner is at 5:30. 530, it's 5:35 because I wanted to watch the end of the show. Show a little bit of nurturing that what you the adult likes is important and what the kid likes is important and say, "Okay, yeah, dinner can be at 5:35. Finish your show and then we'll come to dinner." That is taking this high authoritarian and bringing them to a lower level and making it a bit more nurturing. But the opposite is true with some of these parents that just nurture all the time. So nurturing parents would never say no and they don't have structure and they just kind of wing it. And, you know, everything tends to be a little bit loosey goosey where I would go into the home and say, okay, what's your daily schedule? Uh, We don't have a daily schedule. It's just fun. But kids from trauma, People from trauma have to have this consistency in their life. They have to know what's coming. If they don't know what's coming, then they're stuck in that survival brain. And so I take a nurturing parent and I push them up to make a daily schedule. Then they've moved up to a little bit of structure. So just baby steps get you to be a bit more balanced. I want to take structure. I, I have my daily schedule. I know what the family's going to do. It may not be identically the same Monday through Friday, but it's very close. Or every Wednesday, we know we're going to do this, this, and this. I can kind of feel there's a pattern or a rhythm to life. So I need that structure. And my my staff, they get it, but they also say it's a bit challenging to be, because like if I don't have all of this structure, I feel a little bit out of control. And, and I validate that. Yeah, I can totally understand, understand that. But you can, you see that the kids or the people you're working with have no nurturing, then they're not going to feel connected to you, which TBRI, one of the big things is, you know, connecting relationship building. So you have to have a little bit of balance of structure and nurturing. Yeah.
0: Oh, this is such fascinating stuff. And I think really invites our housing programs to think so deeply about, you know, some of the ways that we've been doing things and kind of go just to to think and consider and uh, be open to both a new approach on a philosophical level, but then also start to think about new practices. I don't know if you can remember, I know you mentioned in 2016, you became a a trainer. Can you remember that season of transition and maybe Mm -hmm. give just some thoughts or advice about, okay, we've been introduced to these new ideas and now we have to try and do some things differently in our programs. Um, Can you speak to that season at all?
1: Well, yeah, I went to Texas and uh, I learned all about TBRI and it's a five-day training. And I, I came from an organization that was high structure, like pretty well punitive. We used to say, you know, we deal with kids with high end behavior and we get them to like, you know, they know how to clean their room and, and go to school. And they, they, we structure the day so much. So like we were the thinking part of our, even our teenagers It was so structured. So I'm sitting in this five day training and it was like not until day three that it really hit me because uh, the a big theme there at TPRI is, you know, children come from, these are children from hard places. And someone said, think of the worst 10 minutes of this person's life. How would you deal with them if you could actually see the worst 10 minutes of their life? How would you deal with them? And then the push kept saying relationships heal what relationships hurt. And we've in, we've since changed that to loved people love people. So if you have kids that feel loved, they will produce love and love other people, and we know that from relationships. When I when we feel loved by someone, then we are more apt to love. So that's our thing: loved people love people. But it took me about three days uh, of this training, and I, weird, I've already I had already been studying this. I, I'd been immersed into it, it for about six months. It was a push that we all wanted to do. I wanted to do. And I had such pushback because if my kids or teens don't do their chore and I give them a compromise and, and I say chores have to be done by before dinner, before six. But if I give them a compromise and ask them, do you want to do your chore before dinner or after dinner? Then I feel like I've lost power and that doesn't feel good. I feel like that kid is owning me. But since then, I've I've come to understand that don't be behavior focused, be needs focused. And I will have Force can always get compliance. That's that's the big thing. I can force kids to comply. I can make life so miserable that they'll comply. But they'll never trust me as an adult. So, yep, I can get you to do your chore and I can get you to do your chore at your time, but we'll not have a relationship. And so what is greater? Is a clean room or chores greater or is your relationship with them greater? So here's how they would do it that they would say, they being TBRI taught us that instead of saying, do your chore now, or you have no privileges, it's, you can do your chore now before dinner, or you can do your chore later after dinner, which do you choose? And you're giving two good choices, two choices that they can choose from. Uh, You have a teenager that wants to use their phone. Here's your phone. You know, you have your phone for like 30 minutes after, after dinner. Do you want to be in the kitchen with the phone or do you want to be in the living room with the phone? Because, you know, we don't allow you to be in your room by yourself with your phone. So which do you choose before you hand them the phone? And then, they, and then they choose. And so instead of me always having to be the person to hoard over the decisions they should make, I'm teaching them to make decisions, which is a real challenge. For It was a challenge for me learning this. And I know it's a challenge for my staff as we teach this. And as I get new staff across the state, it's always a challenge. Once people hear it a couple of times and then two and three times, and then they start implementing one or two things, then they're not as opposed to offering choices, offering compromises, sharing power. It, it becomes less nerve wracking and more relationship building. And then when you have a kid that's like, I just don't want to do my chore, then you're able to laugh with them and be like, oh, man, I know you've had a hard day. Do you need something? See, it's not so much of I have to make you do something, but let let me walk this life alongside of you.
0: Yeah, uh, what a great note to end on. Um, yeah, thank you so much, mm-hmm. Amy. Sure. It's just a joy to hear you speak about these things um, and, you know, and having walks them into practice too. So I know mm-hmm. um, there's a high level of interest in our housing world and people are talking about TBRI and we're talking about these topics and it's to really be able to hear from folks who have figured out how it starts to, to shape and shift their program is a really a huge gift and you're really eloquent at speaking about it. So I'm very grateful for your time. And um, yeah, I can, you. I can tell you're a very effective training director. So thank <laughs> you for, for being with us.
1: Listen, people are very important.
0: Truly. Yeah, truly. So thank you to everyone for joining us for this podcast. Amy, if they'd like to learn more about the Missouri Baptist Children's Home, um, is there a website that's easy to access? or
1: Right, Missouri Baptist Children's Home. It's mbch.org. You can put us out there on we our website there. We also are on Facebook, Missouri Baptist Children's Home. And I, I do a, a weekly Tuesday training. So I upload a couple of minute video on training. And a lot of it has to do with TBRI. So like us on Facebook, find us out there on our website, Missouri Baptist Children's Home. We'd love to uh, connect with you. Oh,
0: that's good to know. I'm going to be on the lookout for those weekly trainings. I love love these concepts. So um, again, thank you and uh, blessings on your good work.
1: Thanks a lot, Mary. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pregnancy Help Podcast. To subscribe to future
0: episodes, access resources related to today's session, or listen to previous episodes. Visit www.heartbeatinternational.org/podcast.
1: Thanks for tuning in.